This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off this week. You've heard the news. Ontario's chief medical officer has reinstated Directive 2, a so-called Directive 2 for hospitals and regulated health professionals, instructing hospitals to pause all non-emergent and non-urgent surgeries and procedures in order to preserve critical care and human resource capacity. To help us understand what this means to Ontarians and Zoomers in particular, I'm joined by Dr. Jamie Spiegelman, internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital, Dr. Ayel Golan, intensive care physician here in the GTA, and Dr. John Granton, staff physician at University Health Network and an intensive care specialist at Toronto General. Thank you all, doctors, for your time today. Thanks for having me, join. Uh, Dr. Golan, let's talk about what this directive means to individual hospitals and health networks. Sure. So I think uh, it, it comes from the fact that unlike the previous ways where there are, there are issues with number of beds or, or medications or resources as PPEs, the, the number one problem now is human health resources where there just aren't enough staff uh, there aren't enough staff for a variety of reasons. Enough staff I need nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, physicians, all the allied health, and it's partly because of the expected burnout. Uh, some people have left the field, some people have retired, and so the issue stems from the fact that, well, we know you you might have uh, the number of beds available, you don't have the expertise to staff those beds, and so in an effort to redeploy people to where they are most needed during this fifth wave. Uh, what they're doing is they're, they're trying to cancel anything that is not as essential and redeploy people. So you may have the ability to operate and you may have a certain number of operating rooms, certain number of hospital beds for those patients. You don't have the staff to actually take care of them. Dr. Spiegelman, um, can you identify for us what non-emergent and non-urgent surgeries and procedures look like? Like, give us some examples. Sure. Any any elective surgery, for example, uh, knee replacement, hip replacement, things that are not completely emergency that are acutely required, are are non are non uh, urgent. So uh, many surgeries that are pre booked would be considered that. Uh, there are exceptions to that, of course, like cancers, uh, for example, uh, that are known to be aggressive. Surgeries are still going to go on for those in our hospital, at least. Uh, but things like knee replacements, hip replacements for arthritis, um, elective cosmetic surgeries, for example, those are going to be deferred for at least the next couple of weeks to see where this is going in terms of where the pandemic and this fifth wave is going. Dr. Granton, so what percentage mm-hmm. of procedures, surgeries would be the ones that Dr. Moore is talking about pausing in Ontario? Well, there's there's a prescribed ramp down in, in uh, surgical volumes that um, is, is sort of mandated by the province and uh, through the different directives that come down from the province. So it's usually not uh, something that an individual hospital will in, impose, but individual hospitals will have to calibrate based on uh, what was mentioned around their current volumes within their hospital and what they can accommodate. Um, And that's often driven by bed availability and also ICU capacity for acute uh, events um, or or, um, major surgeries. Um, But uh, each hospital will will decide what it's, it's capable of doing to some extent. But a lot of this comes down for the province, and we adjust our, our surgical volumes and clinical volumes accordingly. So we also have a ramp down in other forms of care, uh, regular medical clinics and other things. So, so the impact is pretty broad-reaching. And we're also trying to... Uh, you know, clear up the backlog from the previous three waves. So this is this is a really unfortunate situation for people who have been waiting for elective surgery, who are frankly suffering from 
uh, pain or disability uh, who really need surgery, but it's not imminently life-threatening, but it is disabling. And it's these people we'd like to hear from today. If you are one of those whose um, surgery or procedure is going to be put off yet again because of this latest directive, and you feel like talking about it on the radio, uh, we would love to hear from you. 416-360-0740. Of course, it's always anonymous on the radio. Or toll-free 1-866-744-740. And by hearing from you, if your surgery or procedure has been put off, we get a clearer picture, the rest of us, of, uh, of how this latest directive is affecting Ontarians and their health and um, and their comfort level, uh, for sure. Now, now let's talk about um, what you think about this directive personally. Uh, Dr. Golan, is it a good idea? Uh, I'm not sure if it's a good idea or a bad idea. I don't, I don't know if there's much of a choice in, in, at this stage. We, we don't have enough information to know the true effects of Omicron at this stage, and part of that is because we're shortly after the New Year's. Uh, and... I'm sure people got together. I'm sure people celebrated as they, they would. People are tired of COVID. They put off the last uh, couple New Year's and couple holidays. And I, I have no doubt people have, have, have got together. So the true effect and the hospital burden from from the holidays, we don't even know yet. Uh, I do feel it's, it's a bit of a shame that they had to um, close schools in addition to it and, and do things where everybody's affected in that way because... You can argue some things are more essential than others, and I'm not here to say one is more than the other. It just, I wish that it was more of a prescribed kind of um, uh, ramp down, uh, if possible. Dr. Spiegelman, what about you? Is this the right decision given the circumstances of today? I think uh, the answer will we'll find out in two weeks from now. But definitely what we're seeing uh, in our hospital, at least, is def- a significant increased number of COVID patients being admitted. And what we're seeing is, uh, like before about New Year's, we were getting one or two COVID patients a day admitted to the hospital. Now we're seeing anywhere between 10 and 20 patients admitted. And most of these patients are elderly. They're either from a long-term care facility, unvaccinated, or um, they have an immune problem where they are either on chemotherapy, where their immune system is not working, or they're, they're on medications that that decrease that that mean their immune system weak, such as immunosuppressants for arthritis, for example. So those are the patients we're seeing admitted um, at this point, and a lot of them are not extremely sick where they're coming to ICU immediately. So we'll have to find out whether they get worse on the floors, on the medical floors that they come to the ICU like we've seen in previous waves or whether they stabilize and they're in the hospital because they're a little dehydrated and feeling unwell with a flu-like illness. So do I think uh, we shut down appropriately? Uh, I think it's better to be safe than sorry at this point. So I think the answer is yes at this point. However, I think if we find that we're not overwhelmed in one to two weeks, then I think we should reopen mm-hmm. uh, much earlier as well. Dr. Granton, what are your thoughts on the decision? Well, you know, I, I turn, I'm not expert in this. I think I, I turn to the science table to inform, uh, which in turn informs the government. And I, I think that's where the expertise lies. And, you know, they have a lot of the epidemiologists and expertise in, in doing the modeling of these different scenarios and the effect of different interventions on on their modeling and can kind of track real time what the uh, health burden is. We've lost a little bit of information because we really don't have a true sense as to the number of people infected, but we do have numbers on the number of people hospitalized, the number of people coming into the ICU. And we can also turn to other countries. We're, We're in North America, we benefit from the fact that um, other countries have already gone through this. And, you know, there's data out of South Africa, in fact, that um, shows that the number of uh, percentage of people hospitalized for the Omicron variant presumably is less. Um, the, the number, they tended to be younger, in fact. Um, they tended to be more predominantly female, and they tended to require less oxygen and less commonly admitted to the ICU. But it's important to understand that, you know, that that's fine. It's a lower percentage, but it's it's now we're dealing with a, a lower percentage of a much larger number of people who are infected. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I agree with my colleagues that 
it remains to be determined the impact that this is going to have on our healthcare resources and infrastructure. Even though people may be not as sick, um, they still come to hospital and they still require a, a, a bed on the floor and nursing care and physicians to look after them. And so we're really in a bit of a perfect storm where we have this tidal wave of people potentially needing medical treatments and a shortage of um, healthcare uh, human resources uh, across all levels um, and being able to manage them um, because they're also at home sick, they're at home with their kids, um, or, or they've had an exposure. So it really is um, a bit of a balancing act and I think will really challenge us uh, as a true healthcare system. Uh, we're, we're able to move patients and potentially move staff between those areas which are feeling these uh, crunches. Um, we saw that within critical care, but I think it will challenge our ability to work effectively as a, uh, a system across the province. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, I, I want to hear uh, from all three of our doctors uh, the typical Omicron patient who is admitted to hospital, what that journey is like for that individual, whether they're vaxxed, unvaxxed, their age. I want to get a clear picture of, of who this person is, as well as the staffing issues uh, that are being uh, faced and becoming a big challenge in the hospitals. We will talk about all of that next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We're talking about the directive for hospital resources to now go primarily to treating COVID patients with the exception of emergencies and uh, surgeries, procedures that are related to cancer and other emergency situations. And on our panel here this half hour is Dr. A.L. Golan, Dr. Jamie Spiegelman and Dr. John Granton. Uh, is it fair to say, I'll start with you, Dr. Golan, is it fair to say that the majority of the patients now being treated in hospital with COVID have the Omicron variant? Uh, that would be the assumption, yeah. So the, the vast majority, over 90%, would be Omicron. Um, and as, as you mentioned earlier, these patients tend to be, um, unfortunately, the ones that we get admitted to hospital, Omicron doesn't discriminate, so everybody can be in, uh, infected by it. And there's all kinds of demographics, but the ones who get admitted to hospital and use the hospital resources tend to be the elderly, the unvaccinated, uh, those who are immunosuppressed. Um, and un- unlike previous waves, uh, a lot of these COVIDs do not need to come to the intensive care, but they do need to be admitted to hospital and they do take quite a bit of resources. Uh, the odd ones do get to the ICU, not as much as before, but they still um, take quite a bit of work. And uh, and that is the main difference between, you know, Omicron and Delta is that they they tend to be not as sick, but still sick enough to require hospitalization and still need somebody to care of them who's got a specialty in managing them. And uh, Dr. Golan, are they coming to the hospital because they're having trouble breathing? Uh, what what is to, what gets them to the hospital? Yeah, so that's, that's actually an excellent question. I think that's still not entirely known because a lot of people who get tested end up having they're positive. And the question then becomes, did, did COVID bring them into the hospital with a COVID pneumonia or, or is this an incidental finding that came in with something else? The, the, the majority who get admitted to hospital do have COVID pneumonia. Uh, that said, we do find quite a bit of incidental findings. Somebody may have had a hip fracture and you test them and have, uh, they're positive for COVID. Do they actually have the pneumonia and the infection and, and are, they, are they sick because of that? Uh, I think that's one of the questions the government's trying to answer is how many of those people who are admitted to hospital have COVID pneumonia causing their illness or do they have something else that they got admitted for and they incidentally also have COVID and what is the effect on treating them with that? Uh, Dr. Spiegelman, um, so the majority of patients, uh, just referencing Dr. Golan's experience, immunocompromised, elderly, unvaccinated, are the unvaccinated patients primarily older or are they across all age groups? No, I I think the they're across all, uh, all age groups, but they're mostly in the elder, elderly for sure. And like I said, what we're seeing now with admitted patients is there's there's an occasional healthy younger person that gets admitted, but that's rare that we're seeing in our hospital, at least to our medical floors, and definitely not to the ICU. But what we're, we are seeing in our hospital right now 
are the long-term care uh, patients and the nursing home patients where we know there's outbreaks in our community in some nursing homes. We're, we're seeing the immunocompromised patients, so they're on chemotherapy or they're on some immunomodulant uh, medications. Uh, or and, and we're definitely seeing the trickle effect of the unvaccinated patients and usually in the older patients. Older, unvaccinated. Dr. Granton, also your experience? Well, I say you know, I live in the ICU realm uh, and as opposed to general medicine, where I think most of the patients are being admitted, as, as do my colleagues. So, and again, I, I turned to a recent publication out of South Africa, which um, um, was a bit different. I think maybe each place will experience it, but they were, in fact, younger had fewer underlying medical conditions of the patients who were actually presenting the hospital and being admitted. So, and we are seeing that, that we are seeing younger people getting sick from this variant who do have to come in the hospital. Now they're much more, they're less likely to get very sick. And we're seeing a lot more people just sort of sitting on lower, lower levels of oxygen than we had previously. And the number of people with severe, severe pneumonia seems to be less with this particular variant. Um, but again, they're still requiring hospitalization and admission. And as my colleague said, the people who tend to get sicker are the unvaccinated um, and also people who are not effectively vaccinated. And by that, I mean, maybe they haven't had the booster shot mm-hmm. or maybe they have a, a disease or drugs which are suppressing their immune system or age related uh, loss of really integrity or function of our immune systems. Unfortunately, as we age, we see that drop off as well. So those are the people who are much more likely uh, to get sick. But we do see, uh, you know, still like, and this study would suggest that, that it's the unvaccinated uh, who are and still coming to hospital, still getting sick. And I, I would emphasize too, I, I, I feel uh, that this is a nice opportunity for us to also emphasize um, ways that your um, viewers could actually help us um, address some of these uh, pressures on our healthcare system, if I may. Oh, yeah, that's, that's excellent. You know, yep. If you don't, yeah, people coming to the emergency department, for example, for COVID testing, um, and we're seeing that it's having a huge impact on our ability to provide care who do come. Um, you know, with with needs who are who are actually sick and and need to be seen. We're seeing a lot of people lining up to get testing, and you know, I really need to discourage people actively about doing that. It's it's actually the new guidance suggests that if you know if you've got somebody at home they have COVID symptoms, they've got COVID. You don't really need to come back and and have a test at this point. I think we've we've lost control of that, and and so there really is no practical need to get tested. You need to uh, be isolated. Uh, if you're feeling sick, by all means, come in, come to the emergency department. But if you're just coming for a test, please do not. Um, it is really overwhelming our, our system, as which is already stretched. So, and so uh, I think- you will serve somebody who wants a test in mm-hmm. the ER of a hospital who has no symptoms? Well, we, we're discouraging that. Yeah. We're trying not to do that, but we do see people. We do turn. We do try to direct them towards um, appropriate clinics to do that. But people are showing up, and they have to be reviewed, assessed, and and they stand in a line with everybody else. And so it just puts an extra burden on our triage officers and nurses to to go through those oh, people. Yeah. And they do take up space. Definitely, Murray and Malton has been waiting a long time to get in on the conversation. Murray, thanks for holding. Go ahead. Yeah, that is- Fine. Yeah. Thanks, Jane. Uh, both of my comments have been covered, but uh, well, the shortage of staff is all across the board. Gold Transit's going through it right now, and that's why the schools are shut down. As Doug Ford said, he doesn't know who's going to show up for work, who's going to look after the kids when they get there. And uh, do you have any sense, doctor, on how many people are actually showing up because they had a rapid antigen test and it showed positive and they wanted to uh, reconfirm it? Yeah, perfect segue, Murray. I wanted to talk about absenteeism and how that is affecting hospitals and care of patients. Dr. Golan, it's your turn. Sure. So I I think to emphasize the, the staff shortage is not necessarily people who have COVID or I think it's a variety of things. It's one where we're more than two years into it now. Um, people are tired and a lot of the specialized people could have left the field or changed profession. Some people have retired. Uh, some people do have symptoms and every hospital has its own policy for how to how to test it. Um, the, the majority will say if you have symptoms, you should have a rapid test and we have a method of doing rapid tests. And if it's positive and you have symptoms, you stay home. And if it's negative, then, uh, there, there's processes for do you need a confirmatory test or not, but most people who are not coming, it's it's not just because they're sick. It could be 
you know, their child was exposed at school or uh, at, at an event or with a friend. Uh, they, they have a loved one to take care of. Now, children are at school, so more people are trying to take, uh, remote school, I'm sorry, so people are trying to take some time and be home and be with their, with their kids at home. So I think it's a combination of things. As to the percentage of people who are staying home as compared to before, mm-hmm. it's very hard to guess. But uh, what we're seeing in, in the numbers, a lot of the floors, a lot of be it the ICU or the medical floors or surgical floors, have ramped down you know, significantly, 30%, 40% at times, and even close certain wings. Because though the beds are physically there and you have the equipment and you have the medications, you don't have the nurse, the, the, the respiratory therapist, the physiotherapist, the physician. You don't have the people to take care of those so you don't individual. have a, you don't have enough backfill if somebody calls in sick. Well, if somebody calls in. Most people who who call in, it's not just a matter of calling in sick. It's yeah. they, they 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 don't they they don't pick up a shift. They don't call in sick. The the backup are already exhausted or already working. Um, they, they, it's just a trickle down effect, and unfortunately, it's been going on for so long that people are just they're tired, and so a lot of people will not pick up the extra shift and. You have people who are working in multiple hospitals who are just going from shift to shift to shift, and eventually one of them might get a symptom, and then they're off. And you can, you can imagine in our institution we have you know several doctors who have COVID. Now we have multiple nurses who have COVID, yes. and they don't have much symptoms, but they can't take care of patients if they're coughing, uh, be it you know just a mild cough and a mild fever. And I think it's very easy to to have um, a bottleneck effect where one person gets sick, and it's already a stressed-out system that was already at its limits pre-pandemic, and then you add several waves uh, in addition to where there's a, a backlog as well. So there's added pressure. Dr. Spiegelman, what's your experience at Humber River Hospital with uh, a sh- a staff shortages? Yeah, I, I agree with Dr. Golan, and um, in terms of like in terms of uh, the the effect of everyone's getting Omicron and everyone's getting COVID, and all of us are getting exposed to to COVID. I, I do find that. Most of the staff are getting exposed to it probably outside the hospital, but more than inside because we, we use significant PPE within the hospital. What, what I am finding, however, moreover than what Dr. Golan ha- has said, is that the domino effect with all these lockdowns. A lot of our nurses in the ICU are, have young kids at home, and with the shutdown of schools and, and uh, virtual schooling right now, a lot of the nurses are having a hard time getting caregivers for their kids to be at home. So that's a, a significant domino effect that I've noticed a lot with, with a lot of their, our younger nurses that have kids at home. So there's definitely multi-aspect of everything that's going on. And we know that Omicron is very contagious and, and for the most part causes very mild disease. And a lot of us, if not all of us, are going to be exposed to it, whether it's in the grocery store or, or just going out. And, and unfortunately... A lot of us are going to be testing positive, even with very mild symptoms. And the rules right now are we can't come to work. And uh, if we do have a positive test, and from our perspective, we do have a positive test and we do have mild symptoms, we have to stay home for five days. And that's going to create, you know, this domino effect in terms of a shortage. And the shortage really, from my perspective, in the hospital is what we're finding at Humber River Hospital is nursing care. We're really lacking a significant number of nurses. We have doctors, and doctors will make up work for other doctors uh, for the most part. Um, there's the other allied health, such as medical imaging people, porters, housekeeping. Those are all significant contributors to the healthcare system that we need in the hospital. And, and that, that, that it's a kind of a domino effect overall that I'm finding. And, and Dr. Grant, in just a minute left mm-hmm. here in the show, uh, on your take uh, with the staffing shortages at UHN and Toronto General? Well, I agree with my colleagues. You know, it really is a delicate ecosystem, and you're seeing, you know, the effect in one area can have a, a downstream or a ripple effect in another, which can be an unattended off, offshoot effect of a decision that's made, rightly or wrongly. And so, you know, I, I don't envy uh, the decision makers. It's a tough job. And so, um, you know, I think you can criticize either way. Um, you know, with our own place, we are developing strategies. We have different phases for allowing healthcare workers to come back into the organization a bit sooner, putting some safeguards around that. Mm-hmm. And we also identify, uh, you know, key programs and individuals in those programs who have unique training or unique skill sets that we need to bring in because there is there is nobody. If you have a transplant surgeon 
down or a specialized nurse or uh, somebody providing a certain level of care that requires a high level of training. You just don't, you know, you can't um, duplicate those people. And so you need to look at uh, very flexible strategies to provide that that. That skill set. You have all, we'll have to leave it there. You have all really yeah. helped us understand what's happening in the hospitals. And knowing how busy you all are, we really appreciate your time today. Pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Dr. John Granton, staff physician at University Health Network and intensive care specialist at Toronto General. Dr. Ayal Golan, intensive care physician here in the GTA. And Dr. Jamie Spiegelman, internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital. Jane for Libby, back with you again tomorrow. You can get the very latest news. Stay with us. Bob Kompsik is next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off this week. So lucky me. I get to hang out with our strategy panelists on the first Tuesday of 2022. John Capobianco is a conservative strategist and senior vice president, senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz is CEO at Variety Village. And Charles Souza is a former liberal Ontario finance minister. Happy New Year, panelists. Happy New Year, James. Happy New Year, everyone. Well, in this latest round of Here We Go Again, Ontario is going back into partial lockdown tomorrow with 50% capacity in retail and personal care and closures across the board, including indoor dining and attractions, museums, art galleries, gyms, fitness facilities, etc. Charles, what do you make of the timing of the Premier's announcement yesterday after the new year after Christmas? You know, I don't envy any of these public officials, elected officials, those that are serving us in these times of crisis. But i got to tell you, what, what I hear are things like all decks on hand, we're going to use every toolbox available to us, we'll be proactive, we'll be taking a common-sense approach. We've heard these time and time again, and yet here we are, again, doing a Band-Aid solution at the last minute. It's not decisive. And to blame others is not leadership. And what's worse, it's been totally predictable. The science table has made it very clear that what these things are taking place. And yet again, we're using temporary measures to take instead of looking ahead. And it's tough. These are tough decisions to make. Um, but to what extent could he have done more ahead of time? And, um, and that's the question that's being posed. And, and what do you what do you think the answer is? What's the answer to well, that, Charles? Well, you know, the answer is given to us by so many others. I mean, make rapid testing more accessible. Allow more of these kits to be available so they could facilitate those asymptomatic transmissions. Look at improving our ventilation systems. I know they've invested a bit in help of filters, but they could have done more to protect the schools when they were going to be reopened. Do some data collection to digitizing some of the contract tracing so that we are able to look at what's going to take place. And by all means, start pushing for the vaccines and the boosters. I know he's saying so, but there's a big anti-vax movement within the Conservative Party, both federally and provincially, that have delayed some of these very issues to take place. And listen to these predictable models. I know there's some discussions between the science table and there's some playing games going on between them, but enough's enough, right? And we have to just sort of step up, take these measures into place, and act accordingly. Now, let me say this, too. This has been undetermined. Like maybe none of this would have made a difference. I, we don't know, but we should have been we should have been able to have rapid testing. I mean, I have been waiting two weeks for my own PCR test. Now that means I have to take a two tier system and pay for something so I can get the next day. But when you have a lot of people that are exposed and you're not prepared for it, you're not prepared to manage this incoming. That is a problem. And government exists to provide for those services. Did you have and symptoms? Rely, and not to rely on, on private business. I mean... Sorry, Charles, funding, did you have symptoms yeah. of COVID? I mean, no, I don't no, want to get too my personal. My family was exposed. So my son was exposed. Oh, he I had see. symptoms. We did a rapid test and he was tested positive. So all of us went in to get tested. Gotcha. Two others ended up feeling the symptoms and no one's gotten back to us in two weeks. That's... Un- that's, that's yeah. Does it make sense to me? Does it make sense that we're in this predicament? John, to Charles' point, we knew Omicron cases were ballooning at least a couple of weeks ago, and this would ultimately affect hospitalization and ICU numbers. So maybe it was two weeks ago that yesterday's announcement should have been made. 
Well, you know, I wish everybody had a crystal ball. And I think that if, if, if there was one government that made the decision or made a wrong decision and everybody else was in the same boat, then it's different, Jane. I think the fact that we've seen every province dealing with this in the way that they best they can, I think indicates that everybody was trying to deal with it best that, the best that they could do, given all the circumstances. You know, like everybody, if you look at all the healthcare professionals, they've got one single interest, and, and it's obviously to make sure that that people's health is looked after, the hospitals, the beds are available. Then you look at businesses, big and small, they've got their own interests. So when they have these competing interests where businesses are saying to the premier, you've got to keep us open, we can't afford another lockdown, we, we can do this, we've got all the right method, methods and, and cleaning services. And then you've got healthcare saying, no, no, you have to lock us down the minute that they have something happening, a, a pandemic. That's what the governments are dealing with. So it's easy for someone to say, well, we should have locked down two weeks ago. We should have locked down the minute Omicron came on. But when you have businesses who are surviving and you've got people who are relying on jobs for their livelihood saying, look, if we can do this, we can withstand this. Premier Ford did the best he could based on making sure that he saw what was going on with Omicron, with the cases over the course of the last little while. And then when he finally realized that hospital beds and, and hospitalizations were going up, he shut it down. Mm-hmm. And of course, now people are saying, well, it's not too, it's not it's too late. It's too, too soon. And you're never going to make anybody happy. But I think the fact is, if everybody gets vaccinated, if you get the, if you get the vaccine and the booster shots as much as you can and uh, testing, then things will, you know, will be under control. But you can't, there's no, there's no single bullet solution to this. Karen, yesterday's announcement, I know you're, as the CEO of Variety Village, it's personal, right? It means you're shut down again as of tomorrow. Yeah, and, you know, I, I kind of disagree, actually, with, with John that everyone's doing the best they can because, what has been consistently absent from this government is a strategy for how we're going to deal with what we know. And 12 weeks ago, one of the members of the science panel said, or not 12 weeks ago, sorry, a few weeks ago, he said, in the next 12 weeks, every single person is going to be exposed to this virus unless you're a hermit. So we knew. There's nothing that's unfolding now that we didn't know. But nobody at the time stood up and said, in light of that, we are going to keep the schools open. And here's how we're going to do it. In light of that, here's how we're going to keep businesses open, and here's how we're going to do it. No one said any of that. They, they handed out the test kits willy-nilly at the liquor store, as if, like, what was that going to do? Instead of actually keeping them so that when the kids went back to school, that they could be used in a strategic way. So I'm sitting here as a citizen, aside from the fact that my business is closed again, and I can't lay off my staff anymore because I've already laid them off twice. So now I'm just going to pay them because I, I, I don't want them to go somewhere else. And my kids aren't in school because online is not actually learning. And so I'm thinking, I'm sitting here wondering, in light of everything that we knew, in light of all the decisions that we could have made, nobody said the messaging that we needed to hear that, yes, you know what, if you get vaccinated, you're probably going to get COVID and your symptoms are going to be mild. And here's how we need to look at this. And here's what we're going to be up against. And here's how we need to now consider quarantine. And here's how we're going to get the kids to school. Nobody said any of that. But they never knew that, though, Karen. When did they know? They didn't know that it was severe or, or less severe three weeks ago or four weeks ago when Omicron came up. They're starting to see this. They're starting to see the tests now that it's less severe. But what they're seeing is hospitalizations are increasing. So they had to deal with that. But they can still keep the kids in school. But they didn't oh, make and, it a priority. You think that would be a but criticism? they didn't make it a priority. And Ontario has been the jurisdiction that stands out in North America as yes. keeping the kids home. Yeah, we've. Uh, and from well, my it's been twenty six weeks. It's been 26 weeks, half of an entire year, that students in Ontario have been learning virtually. And, and so much has been made of that, uh, Charles, just to go over to you, that more should have been done earlier so at least the children could physically be in the classrooms this week. And, and had we shut everything down two, three weeks ago in anticipation of going back to school after the winter break. It, you know, it might have been different for the schools at the very least. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was with two teachers yesterday uh, watching the news, and they're infuriated because they have children themselves. They're trying to manage their classrooms while still attending to their own children in their home, and they're frustrated because everything seems to be, doing, seems to be done last minute. And it's indecisive. I mean, they go back and forth with some of the decisions. Um, the, the realization is that good government is paramount in these issues. And that means the, the notion initially by Doug Ford and some of the other members from the federal government who are conservative want to have less government uh, in the situations that we have had in the past. 
slashing and privatizing these vital services are not the answer. We need to ensure that ahead of time we would have had some of those services ready and some of those strategies in place to ensure that the students would still be in school. And the biggest problem isn't the COVID virus itself. It's just the mental health of some of these students, these young people that are suffering and not having socialization and the stress it's putting on families. And I, I appreciate what John is saying. No one knows, no one has a crystal ball. But what we did know is that it was going to happen. And we could have prepared better, I think. It's easy for us to say that, of course, that we're not the ones making the decisions. But having been there myself in the past, you do to rely on, on some of your teams and others to provide you advice. But you have to be the decision maker. And you can't keep going back and forth using temporary solutions and band-aids and not looking for a sustainable solution over time. Like, appreciate the fact that we're living with this. It's going to continue to be part of our existence and our lives. Have strategies in place to ensure that we maintain restaurants and uh, schools open, while at the same time taking the necessary precautions to avoid those transmissions and take those steps effectively. I'm with our Tuesday strategy panelists, Charles Souza, Karen Stinson, John Capobianco, Jane for Libby, uh, and your phone calls as well. What do you think about uh, the restrictions? We've been there before. They're kind of a variation on step two. Are you in favor of this based on what's happening with Omicron, despite our extremely high vaccination rate in this province? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. John, let me ask you, as a conservative strategist, what was the strategy around not having Education Minister Stephen Lecce as part of that announcement yesterday? Because, you know, the school element of this is such a big piece. Well, I think it's because Stephen, the minister, sort of came up earlier and and sort of suggested all the things that they were doing at schools. The the only announcement he made was that it was going to be, you know, delayed until January the 5th. I think the the premier just made the announcement that it's going to be delayed another two weeks. So there was nothing more than, from that perspective, I think all of the issues and all of the announcements regarding schools were already made before that. Uh, I think the major announcement yesterday was based on businesses and and, and sort of this modified step two of the roadmap to reopen. So I think that was the main thing that was uh, that was being discussed yesterday. But look, you know what? No one's going to be happy about this, Jane. We've seen this over the last almost two years, right? There's going to be some that are going to say it's not fast enough. There's not enough money. There's not enough materials. And then they're going to say, well, it's the federal's problem because they, they should be giving us uh, more equipment and more more vaccines and all this kind of stuff. So the, the best we can do is making sure that you can try to get the hospitals and, and beds and, and ICUs. That's what's important, because at the end of the day, we want to save as many lives as we can. Everything else, as far as businesses, we can give them more money. We can try to make them sort of, you know, whole as much as we can. As, as you know, the, the government's spending $10 billion in support of since the pandemic. So, you know, that's the, the thing that the governments are going to try to grapple with, not just Ontario. This is all the provinces. This is the federal government as well. Okay, let me put this out there then. Uh, You brought up the hospitalization and ICU numbers, and we know as a fact that the COVID cases in the hospitals are driven by the unvaccinated. At the same time, Karen, Variety Village, fitness centers, gyms, uh, indoor dining has required at least double vaccination to go inside as, as a customer. So is there not a bit of a disconnect there? Why not at, at least maybe you could raise the uh, vaccination status to triple vaxxed for dining rooms and fitness facilities? Because you know that those are not the people who are fueling the hospitalization numbers. You're still keeping the unvaccinated out, but you're allowing these facilities to carry on. Well, and that would be a strategy again, but it would it would then have to... The challenge that we're in right now is that this uh, the original surge in um, Omicron cases came from vaccinated people, right? Because we were the ones that were out in the, in, in the bars and in the nightclubs, and we were the ones that were out in the restaurant. Yeah, but we're, not, so, we're not clogging we're up not the hospitals, it, though. But we're not in the hospital, yeah. correct. And so that's the disconnect that I think all of us are having right now, because we've all, you know, all of us did exactly, not all of us, a number of us did exactly what we were supposed to do. We went and got our vaccination, we went and got our booster shot, we kept our, um, you know, we kept our gatherings small, and even small gatherings, people got COVID. I, for the first time ever, actually, my close friends have been tested positive for COVID, but they have no significant symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so I can't reconcile while the kids can't go back to school. 
Now, I understand that the hospital situation, that the staff are tired, that they they are now getting exposed, staff aren't showing up, that there's a problem with the capacity that we maintaining our current capacity, let alone if it goes up. I intellectually understand all of that. What I don't understand is that how we can be one of the most vaccinated places in the planet and be shut down. Yeah, good point. Let's go to the phones now. Pat in Toronto, you're on Fight Back. Go ahead. Hi, um, Jane. Uh, Two points. We can't be blaming the politicians for all of this. I mean, they're supposed to be the governance people, as opposed to management are the people down below. So, I mean, and I think Dougie is listening to them big time. If there is one, uh, you know, complaint, it's poor communications. But, you know, when I heard Dr. Tang, I can't remember whether Tam, two or three weeks ago mentioning 26,000, I said, wow, this is going to be a real show. Well, what are we up to now? 40,000 a day. So, I mean, uh, and that's a countrywide number, but. Mm-hmm. It's not that we didn't know, but, but, you know, people are tired and they don't want to believe all of this. And if there's one group that we should be really blaming, it's the non-vaxxers. Because if we had a 99% vaccination rate, we wouldn't be having the problems we're having. It's as simple as that. Pat, thank you. Well said. Uh, Charles, do you agree with that? Why is there not a focus by the Premier on the unvaccinated? Absolutely. And I think we've as we said that many times on this show. Even John, a, a good conservative, recognizes the need to have more people vaccinated. And I believe the premier be- believes it, too. He may have had a lot of apprehension initially because of the movement that exists in the undercurrent of those parties. But they recognize that they have to have that done. And as I said earlier, it's delayed so much of what we need to do. And that is one measure that could have been handled well ahead of time to avoid some of the beds that are being occupied today. Uh, Certainly, John, uh, the Premier has not used the strategy of shaming to blame the unvaccinated. Would that be a way to go? Would that not make the 90% of us who have feel a little bit better that he's calling out those who are causing these hospital rates to go up? I think he and other politicians are always calling out people who are unvaccinated. I think they're doing everything they can shame them by saying, you know, get vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, you're causing some of the problems. But you know what, short of forcing people or or sending them to jail or fining them $50,000 for not getting vaccinated, you you know, even that, I'm sure you're not going to get people who are going to just thumb their nose at this. There are a certain amount of people, be it 10% of it, who are just not going to get vaccinated, either because they're total anti-vaxxers and no matter what government says or no matter what the incentives there are, or what, quite frankly, ramifications you have. Like, you, you've got people now that aren't vaccinated who can't do anything. Can't go to restaurants, can't go see a movie, can't go to a gym, can't virtually do anything. But you're not going to they can't go to the hospital. And they occupy a space in the hospital bed that yeah. then avoids oh, those getting well, surgery. So that's the you're problem. Gonna, you're going to jail them? You're going to tell people you, you, you have to get vaccinated or you're going to jail? Is that what you're going to suggest? Well, what about, what if, what, what if we took a halfway point? You can no longer go into a retail establishment, I'm talking about Loblaws, Costco, unless you show that you're vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah, no, listen, I agree. I, I, any, any, believe me, I am somebody who is very much a vaccination uh, supporter. And I, I know I, you are. My third, my booster shots being set for this Friday. But, um, yeah, I, I think anything we can do to get people to, to get vaccinated, I think this booster shot is forcing people to get first and second vaccinated because I know that at some point there's going to be restaurants who are going to say you can't get in unless you've got three shots. So at least that's forcing some people. But I'm telling you, there are people, there's 10% of this population, no matter what you do, will not get vaccinated. Would you like to add to that, Karen, before we go back to the phones? Well, just quickly in that, you know, I think the complication right now for the premier is that he can't say to unvaccinated people, you can't have access to anything because right now nobody has access to anything. And unvaccinated people will rightly point out that those, the, the high numbers and the high caseloads are actually vaccinated people. So where does the moral authority come from now to say that, uh, mind you, they end up in the hospital, they get sicker. Mm-hmm. But, but the premier is in a very difficult space to say that the numbers are being driven by the unvaccinated because that's actually not the case. No, the, num- numbers the numbers the aren't. But yeah, but the, the but people the who hospital. need treatment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and the, there's the problem, right? Because if the hospital numbers were down and the ICU numbers are down and they're still below where they were uh, during the height of all of uh, April before people were vaccinated. But the way the premier put it yesterday, if we go to 50,000 cases, that's going to be 500 new hospital admissions in one day. But we don't yeah, know that. And, and the, I think the, the positive news, Jane, in this is that the hospital stays are, are shorter uh, and the symptoms are not severe for those who are vaccinated. They, well, right. And even for those who are unvaccinated, um, it's uh, 54% less ser- severe, the Omicron variant, than the Delta. So that is some good news. Let's go to Cheryl in Kingston. Hi, Cheryl. You're on Fight Back. Go ahead. Hello. Thank you. <clears throat> I just have one question. Before uh, the reopening of the schools now, so on the last one, the government supposedly did everything to make the schools safe. So if they then uh, put 70,000 HEPA filters in schools to make them safe, how come now they have to put another 30,000 in? Did they lie or what happened? Uh, John, you know, I'm going to put that to you because when we talked to Ryan Bird this morning, the TDSB spokesperson on the morning Zoom here on Zoomer Radio, he said that the TDSB has made that a priority. But, you know, it may not be across the board in all boards across Ontario. So that's where uh, there seems to be a lack of information or a lack of consistency about ventilation in classrooms. Yeah, and I think that sort of seems to be the concern with with a lot of folks, and and, and rightly so. I understand that the government gave school boards the opportunity to come back and say, look, if you need them, you're going to give them there. Because every school board in every part of this province is going to have different needs. But I understand that they've given them all they can over the last little while and as far as, you know, ventilation and, and PPEs and everything else that they need. So I think from that perspective, Jane, it's been sent. But I think some school boards need them more than others. Let's go to Richard uh, calling us from, where are you calling from, Richard? <laughs> Um, actually, I'm, I'm calling from Roscoe, Illinois, but um, I've, I've uh, adopted South York, Ontario. Oh, I see. Okay, so you're an American calling in. You must be listening online. Thank you. Yes. Okay, so what would you like to add? Well, actually, I'm, I'm looking at all this, and you're, you're, we're talking about vaccination, and yet people have the disease, can walk around, and how infectious are they? I mean, maybe... You know, they're talking about five days being um, being able to spread this disease. But you, you are going into a restaurant vaccinated and still have the disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the transmission rate of people that are trans that are, are vaccinated? You know, we're talking about what you mean an asymptomatic person who's vaccinated and then and then the ventilation yeah Yeah, i guess everybody should have should have realized that we need this vaccine if you go to restaurants maybe you should have each table back um with a filtration system on it It, it's just crazy and looking at the economics involved you're shutting down after christmas which is you know they try to make this as good as possible for the holidays so everybody's going to get screwed with with uh, having to deal with this. This is just terrible. Yeah, thank you for your call, Richard. Charles, it's true. I mean, so much investment has been made by small business owners. Uh, They've been compensated somewhat, but certainly not enough in many cases to even stay afloat. And now they're shut down again. Yeah, Yeah, and Richard makes a a good point. I mean, the, the, the issue isn't that it's highly transmissible. I mean, we know that Omicron and the virus is highly transmissible, right? It's, there's a high transmission rate amongst this new variant. That's not the issue. The issue is how are we protecting ourselves as a result of that without closing down? And one of them is make sure you're vaccinated so you can deal with those symptoms more effectively. Mm-hmm. Secondly, make sure you're testing yourself at home before you go out. And in Europe, I mean, my son and his girlfriend are here. They came back home for Christmas, and they are surprised at the Hunger Games that are going around this city in this province for kits for rapid tests he goes we could have we have rapid tests available to us for free in multiple areas or at very low cost he goes we test ourselves all the time to make sure we're okay when we go out and they're vaccinated so taking those two measures alone would help facilitate our ability to manage within this uh, this period and yeah, it's a big thing because uh, yeah. that means herd immunity is probably taking place and if this omicron is less 
severe, better still, we end up building our antibodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've let I've yet to even lay eyes on, on a physical rapid test. Oh, I've only seen them in pictures. I have yet to see them. Karen, I know you have them at home because of your kids. Yeah, well, and, uh, because of work. And because, because of we work, did, yeah. We did the test-to-stay strategy for our camps that we offered over the winter break. Mm-hmm. So we were testing our the, the camp staff that were coming in to look after the kids every day. And we, we were able to identify two people who had COVID who didn't know they had COVID. And we were able to send them home so they could self-isolate right. using the test. Right. Yeah, and even Dr. Uni, who was on with us last week, he said uh, if it's, if you know, the thing about the rapid test is that it could say negative and you could be positive, but it's always right. He says when it says positive, you are positive. So right. that's exactly to your point there, Karen. And I was chatting with a manager at a restaurant um, last week, and same thing. They are testing the employees before they come in, and if they test positive, they have to go home. So that has certainly prevented further spread. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, I know uh, those of you who want to get in, um, maybe you'll be interested in our second segment. We're going to talk specifically about hospitalization, ICU rates, uh, with another panel of experts. But I want to get some closing comments from our strategy panelists. John, go ahead. Well, you know, it's never an easy situation, I guess, with, with respect to how governments are dealing with this issue. Um, and I think that what we're seeing is, is everyone, all, all leaders, uh, provincial, municipal and federal, doing the best they can with what we've got. And I think that's, you know, what we can hope for is, is the best that, uh, that they can do to make sure that we're safe and, and, and people are not hospitalized or not staying in hospitals long. And what about you, Charles? Yeah, you know, there was a perfect storm happening here just before Christmas. Everyone's going to take some time off. Everyone's going to be together. And the Omicron came about us. We knew it was coming, but we somehow felt, I don't know, there was some hope that we won't be able to catch it. I don't know what it was, but people were dying to be together. And then the measures that seem to have been taken by the province, at least, seems to be half measures. And there seemed to be a drift for weeks, right? We didn't know what was taking place. And then we had to react quickly as uh, this thing came to a head, unfortunately. Yeah. Bottom line is, I think the elected officials and political uh, uh, servants are trying their best under the circumstances, and they're inundated, and I feel for them. Uh, we just want people to be safe, so it's up to us to make sure we take those proper measures. Final words from you, Karen. Well, just the next uh, two weeks are not going to look any different than they are today. And so we're still going to have high caseloads. There's still going to be pressure on the hospital. So, you know, I guess my, my final comments would be to the government, well, what is, what is the strategy? Like, what's going to be different in two weeks if the kids are going to be able to go back then if they can't go back now? And that these next two weeks should really be focused on making sure that that happens. Right. I think we all agree with that, right? I yeah. mean, as adults, we can continue to put up with it, but it's not fair for the kids. They need to have their childhood experience uh, all the way through high school. Thank you all for the lively conversation to start the new year. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thank all the best, Thanks everyone. Take care. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. John Capobianco, conservative strategist and senior vice president, senior partner at Fleshman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario finance minister. Jane for Libby. And coming up in the second half of Fight Back, hospital administrators work to free up resources for COVID patients. How will this work? We will discuss with a different panel of experts next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.